We are continuing our study in the book of Acts, and um, I'm not making an apology, but I'll just give you some information today. We're going to cover, I think, the largest section of the book of Acts that uh, we will in the entire study, all of chapter 26, part of verse 25. And so as we do approach that, um, I do want to be respectful of our time here. Um, I know if I go over a certain amount of time, some of you just turn it off, right? Some of you, if you, hear your, if you hear your watch ding, ding, ding on the hour, you're just completely distracted the rest of the time. We also want to be respectful of the ABF hour and the teachers that have prepared lessons and the fellowship groups. Uh, but having said that, I didn't know how else to approach this section without taking a large um, chunk, and I think you'll hopefully still see some good applications from this as the Apostle Paul finds himself under arrest and gives his final defense before those leaders that he would regularly stand before. Before we go any further, would you bow your heads with me and your hearts with me and ask for God's involvement in this time? Our gracious Father, we come into this place with an appreciation that you knew man so well that you knew we would need a church. We would need a fellowship group to encourage one another, to serve one another, a place where we can sit and study the word of God. And I would ask that you would very clearly be involved in our time here, that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. There would be lessons, convictions of the heart that I have not even pondered. And we thank you for the wonderful supernatural teaching of the Holy Spirit We would claim that during this time. We would ask that all the praise and all the glory for anything that is said and done would be for you. We thank you that we can live in a way that pleases you, that would bring a smile to your face. And may this hour when we are together do just that, our loving Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I think one of the most difficult tasks that an individual faces is the task of parenting if you are called to do so. If you are a mother, if you are a father, there are things that you're going to have to do that you do not want to do. And yet you know it will be good for your child if you do that. When we think of this, oftentimes food will come to mind, making a child eat his vegetables. And I've been encouraged some time back with the teaching, even when it comes to food, and I think it applies in other ways as well, that you can have someone acclimate their palate to something to where they dislike it at first, but they actually grow to like it. They will want that and crave that at some point. And one of the tough things as a parent is to decide what to do with that, how to acclimate someone's palate. How do we do that? And what's important? Tina and I had an opportunity a while back that we chose to try to impose something upon our kids that maybe they would not choose. I have a friend, and he um, does some um, welding work and some metal work, and he was presenting that in Flint at the uh, Flint Institute of Arts over there. They had a fair outside. Some of you have been to that and are familiar. Well, we went to see our friend's work and encourage him, and that was kind of fun, but it was right next to the Institute of Art. So we thought, what a great opportunity for us to expand the horizons of our entire family and of our kids. And so we walked through the Art Institute. And as we would walk up to a painting that was on the wall there, we very much told them, okay, now come over here and look at this painting. And it took them about 
two seconds to look at that painting. And we tried to encourage them by saying, no, no, stand there. Now, look at it. And they would look at that painting. And it took about two more seconds for them to be done with that. Maybe they notice an additional color or some detail that's on there. And we found ourselves getting frustrated. No, no, no. Just stand there and look at it. Don't you appreciate it? Doesn't that do something to you on the inside? Doesn't it move you? Some of you already know the answer to that, right? No, it did not move them. They were not impressed at all by that. And we would want for that culture to be applied there. Maybe some of you can relate to this. There's maybe another illustration that I think possibly you'll be able to relate to better. Maybe you have had a favorite song or a certain song that's come up and you love that song or maybe even a movie that you love and you're trying to introduce that music to someone and maybe you've got a group of friends together and you're there and your favorite song comes on or if you're really aggressive, you can bring it up maybe on your device or on a radio and you can play that song for them and you're waiting for that certain part that you love to come in and you want them to hear how the, the horns kick in here or how the key change comes right here. And your friends are talking among themselves. And you don't want to be rude, but you're, you're going to miss it if you're not paying attention. This song has changed my life. You need to stop your conversation and listen. Very likely, some of you have had something that's a favorite song of yours or maybe a favorite movie, and people are kind of disregarding it. And you're thinking to yourself that it's going to change their life. It's going to be amazing because it has changed yours in some way. I think that when we look at what we are passionate about, sometimes there can be parts of our life that, honestly, they're not going to ripple to other people. Just accept that, okay? If you're a huge fan of, you know, uh, Western country music, there might be a lot of folks that's going to ripple right onto. There might be a lot of folks that are like, man, what's going on here? They're all singing through their nose, maybe, you know. But I want to suggest to us today that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there need to be some things that you are, don't miss this, some things that you are passionate about that need to ripple to others. You would see it. You would get excited about it. You would anticipate something, and you would say, oh, if they could only see this like I do. When we think of the gospel message, we understand that the gospel message is one that crosses every border. There's not one people group. There's not one status of kind of group. There's not one country that the gospel message cannot penetrate. When we think of the state of Michigan, there is a need in the hearts of the people in this state. When we think of folks that are in China, when we think of college students that are just maybe getting out of their home and getting some freedom and, and busy with studying and other things, when we think of our in-laws, when we think of our outlaws, when we think of those professionals or maybe the blue-collar workers, every one of those has a need for the gospel. Let me start out by giving you something very broad and then something very narrow, and hopefully this will point us right to this account in the life of the Apostle Paul. The broad thing is this. Our hearts should be saturated for men and women to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
your heart needs to be moved in some way. I do not say that lightly. I know that's a common line that a lot of pastors will say. I also understand that it doesn't just happen overnight. You need to acclimate the palate of your heart for this. You need to pray for God to give you a burden. You need to ask God to help you put on glasses that would see individuals that need the Lord Jesus Christ, whether they are here in the Midwest or on the other side of the world, whether they are one that you get to talk to and interact with on a regular basis or someone that you see once a year. Maybe it's someone in your household that you're praying for and loving on. There should be something within you that moves you to want salvation for all men. That's something broad. Now let me go ahead and narrow that down a bit for us. Because when we think of the gospel, there are at least three individuals that are involved when we think of a soul being converted. There is the individual that is hearing the gospel. We can't do away with that one. There is the working of the Holy Spirit. And you have no idea what kind of preparation has gone into someone's life what God has been doing through maybe their work or their personal life. What's the Holy Spirit doing and what's he going to do at that point when they are undone and their eyes are opened and they see this wonderful truth of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And then that middle one there is the individual of the person that is telling the gospel. This would be you. If that desire, if that burden is going to have that ripple effect, you're going to need to catch it. And my hope is, is that you would have it and others would want to see it. And so when we think of this and these different um, individuals that are involved, I would ask this, what is your part? Or, or better, what is your angle? What is your angle? I don't want you to be a pessimist when I ask that question, what is your angle? Some people automatically think of it in a negative way. Everybody's got an angle. Everybody's trying to do something that I'm not going to want. I want to suggest to you that you need to have an angle that is going to come from a passion for individuals to come to Jesus Christ. As we've been talking uh, through the book of Acts, we have been challenged with the verse in Colossians 4 and 3 where it says that we need to pray for us that God may open a door for the word. Are you praying that God would open a door for you to share this passion that you have with someone? Now, do not fall into the trap of thinking that the only ones you're going to influence are ones just like you. You need to do that. So if you have a certain profession and there's folks on your job, you're going to get a chance to connect with them. But don't fall into the trap of thinking that they're the only ones that you need to have a heart for. You need to have a broad passion for folks to come to Christ. And right in the middle of Paul's final defense, he says these words, I stand here testifying to both great, and they were there, the kings, and I also testify to the small. What do we know about this challenge that I am throwing out today? Whether it is our hometown or whether it's California or France, whether someone is a conservative or a liberal, everyone has something in common. They have a heart that is deceitful, a heart that is desperately wicked. Everyone in every place 
And so with this framework in mind, understanding that no matter who an individual is, we speak the same message. The same message of repentance is needed. The same message of they are separated from God. They were born that way. The same message that Jesus Christ came to this world. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And he died on a cross and he rose from the grave. That's why we celebrate Easter. There are so many handles that you will come across to present this passion when it is in your heart and in your life. And we are praying that the Holy Spirit will do his part. And we are having trust that they have been prepared in some way. And then we are obedient in what we are supposed to do. All that to bring us to our text in Acts chapter 26. If you're not already there, would you please turn in your Bible to Acts 26. If you do not have a Bible of your own, there's probably a pew Bible right in front of you or near you. Please feel free if you do not have a Bible to take that and to keep that. That is our gift to you if you don't have one. Hope you do. And everybody turn to Acts 26 as we look here at Paul's angle. What's Paul's angle here? And I think it's fair to say that because he is among a group of pessimists. Everyone there is wondering, what's this guy getting at? He's not just another um, guy defending himself about what he believed. He's unusual because he's brilliant. It's unusual because at this point, he could have been set free. If you've been following along with us, they had no charges that were put against him that would stick. And so he could have been acquitted. In fact, we saw previously that he appealed to Caesar, and it's because of that that he is still being held, and we'll see that in just a little bit. What is Paul's angle? Maybe some might have thought it was revenge. Paul had some enemies, no doubt. He could stand up in front of kings and governors, and he could down-talk all the things that were wrong with the Jewish program in Jerusalem. Maybe it was revenge. Maybe they thought he was trying to get a following. The longer I am around, the more I realize that men have one of, the, one of the biggest temptations that men face is the temptation of pride and wanting power, wanting a following. Maybe that's Paul's angle. Some of them might have thought. Perhaps he wanted a job. There were all kinds of jobs that were available for someone with his education, and clearly he was a great um, defender of what he believed. So what is Paul's angle? This set of dignitaries, they were concerned very much so with their own success. Even as we have already sang today about the difference between allowing our lives to be guided by wanting gold or money or riches or be guided by a passion for what God wants for us. These individuals that he would stand before, they were driven by their own success, driven by an achievement to take the next step on the ladder. And so they would ask Paul, or ask themselves when they were listening to Paul, what's your angle? What are you getting at? I'm going to back up to Acts chapter 25 and uh, cover just the last few verses there. We ended uh, last time with verse number 22 as um, uh, Festus talks with Agrippa and he tells him this situation that he's in and I think all of that will be revealed in the next several verses as we cover the end of chapter 25 and all of 26. Um, I don't have to do a whole lot of work to keep your attention. This story is fascinating and I, it's likely that you're going to find some applications that I don't even touch on and that's already been my prayer today. Starting in verse number 22 of Acts 25 where it says this, 
Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. We're going to stop right there because I want to ask you to use your imagination. This is quite a scene. It's not an official trial. When Paul appealed to Caesar, anything that would have convicted him or set him free went away. It's not an official trial. But King Agrippa wants to hear him. And so they have a show. This is quite, quite um, a huge something that they were putting on. You need to imagine very possibly the room where there were beautiful tapestries that were on the walls, marble pillars that would decorate the place. And then down at one end, there would be a judgment seat. And there would be a place for the king, maybe a golden throne, with some wonderful cushions. And we find the word pomp here. It's where we get our word fantasia from today. Wonderful pomp involved as they had the kings come in, the dignitaries come in. It was a parade of fantasy. So, and I'm, I'm going to ask you to, con to compare and contrast here in a second, okay? So I need you to get this picture. Imagine the scene. Imagine everyone walking in, their heads held high, the horns blowing, the wonderful music, the beauty of the room. Everything was as nice as it possibly could be. And then someone else enters the room. When we think of this someone else, we think of Paul. We think of Paul coming in, and there was no pomp. There were no horns that were blown what was taking place was there was this small, unattractive Jewish man in prison garb that walked in at some point when everyone else was incredibly enjoying the show. And I want to give you one application. Because as we have the king come in, and as we have Bernice, his sister, come in, and as we have the commanders and the dignitaries, I think very much so it's appropriate for us to make the... Um, the connection to the church today and the world. And what I'm about to say, I am saying to teenagers and I'm saying to folks in their 20s and I'm saying to young adults and I'm saying to parents because it's going to apply to all of you. When we think of this comparison with what the world has to offer and what the church has, so many people very quickly just see it as the world wins. How can you compete with that? Just drive around with your windows down on Saturday night and listen to the world and the fun that they're having. All these things that shine. All these things that would satisfy, yes, satisfy for a what? Season. I was in youth ministry for many years. A popular youth activity is the bigger and better youth activity. Maybe some of you have been involved in the bigger and better activity or you've had someone knock on your door, a teenager, with a bigger and better activity. The idea is, is that you start with something very, very small like a pencil or a paper clip and you go out to different homes and places and you try to trade that for something a little bit bigger or a little bit better. And after a while, you just can't get any bigger. I know one youth pastor that had a car hood actually given as the item. And they had to go and turn it in a car hood. You can't get any bigger than that, really, and get it to the location. We cannot and we should not try to compete with the world in the tactics, tactics that they use. 
They would, off, they would try to offer satisfaction. They would try to offer peace, but they cannot genuinely do it. And so when you picture this idea of these great dignitaries in the room walking in, and then Paul walking in, in his prison garb, you need to understand that Paul is the hero in this scene. Paul is the one who is on the side of right. And when I say I'm talking to teenagers and young adults and older adults, here's why. Because the devil is going to try to do a few things. With you young people, he is going to try to throw everything that looks so appealing and so shiny your way to pull you away from that. And what these teenagers need is someone in their 20s that has a passion for Jesus Christ. That's real. Not just someone who goes to church because they've always gone to church. And what these folks in their 20s need is someone who is a young adult or a young married who's doing it right, who's admitting they don't know everything, but who is admitting that there is nothing that is better than God's church and his people and his way. And what these young married needs is someone who has been married a little bit longer and a little bit older who's doing it right who's teaching them to have this passion, who's teaching them to pray. Everyone is being watched by somebody. You keep your eyes open enough in this world and you will see that everyone is being watched by somebody. This world and this church is full of leaders. But not every leader necessarily is leading people towards Jesus Christ. And I would challenge all of us to stand up and say, I will be one that has a passion for Jesus Christ. And I'm gonna tell you what individuals will say. Here's what they'll say oftentimes when you do that. When you, when, you, when, you, when you show that it's not just a habit on Sunday, and when you show that it's not just a part of your life that makes you feel good, everybody likes to give to charity or volunteer for a cause, when you show this is something real within you, when you show that you genuinely believe that someone who is dead came back to life, and you believe the miracles of the Bible. And then to get into the other things, here's what they're going to think of you. Are you ready? They're going to think you're nuts. That's what they're going to think. When they see this is real within you, they're going to think you're crazy. And I can't, you know, vouch for all of you not being crazy. <laughs> but having said that, if this is your heart and this is your passion, I can stand side by side with you and say, I know that you're not crazy because I believe that too. We're going to see that in just a moment when Paul reveals that he genuinely believed this. Let's uh, pick it up in the second part of verse number 23. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So imagine this picture. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus says, so remember, he's not just saying this to King Agrippa. He's not just saying it before, before the small group. It's to everybody that is there. Festus makes this announcement. He says, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. 
For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Let's stop right there. We find him stating the case here. We find him bringing everything out, and we find this one standing up. Paul is innocent. We understand that. They have nothing that would hold water, but he can't send him to Rome without some charges. He's going to lose some real credibility and maybe lose his job if he does that. And so what we're going to find here is Paul's final defense. It's his fifth and final defense that he gives. And we've talked about this. When we think of a defense, I don't want you to get locked into the idea that Paul is just being accused of something and he can defend himself. He goes on the offense here. Apologetics is a defense of your faith, but very much so you need to have something, that passion within you for someone to come to Christ. You need to be able to direct them to that. When we think of defense, we just think of one side of it, and you have to balance it out. I grew up being a Chicago Bears fan. Um, I don't have a whole lot to brag about with the Chicago Bears. I've got to go all the way back to 1985 and the Chicago Bears, and they were famous for their defense the Bears defense won that Super Bowl it was incredible defense but we cannot forget that they had Walter Payton one of the best running backs of all time they had Jim McMahon the quarterback the defense was incredible but they also had an offense that would score points that won them that championship and so you need to understand don't just be prepared to spar with somebody and defend what you believe be prepared to go on the offense that's what paul does here he takes this chance to defend himself and he goes on the offense and that takes us to point number two i think i gotta fast forward a little bit here paul and this reminds us of the attraction of the world the pure message of the church and then number two Here we have Paul's final recorded defense. He's going to tell his testimony to King Agrippa and Bernice and everybody listening. Don't forget that. Agrippa gets the title in the margin of your Bible there, but he gives this message to everyone who is listening. And he begins by building a bridge that this king could cross over to Jesus Christ on. He builds a bridge here. When he uh, starts out, look at verse number two with me. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth was spent uh, from the beginning among my own nation, and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews." So we see him here, he starts out with his defense, and he talks, about what, he talks about his history. Look at verse number five. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. And so right here, Paul gives the undisputable history that he was at one time a Christian hater. Paul was the chief persecutor of the church. And verse 6 is key here because he says, I'm not just bringing something new. Our fathers, and he says King Agrippa who knew the prophets and believed them, Paul says in just a moment, they were all ones that were pointing to a Messiah. 
And so he's saying a true Jew is one that is looking for a Messiah, and he has seen the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. To which are twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And so Paul seems to press the pause button in this speech in talking to King Agrippa, and it almost seems like he surveys the entire room, maybe makes eye contact with those in the room, and says, why in the world would you think that it's so incredible that God can raise the dead? It's almost like he's saying, don't just sit there. Ask yourself this. So many folks were there for the show, were there maybe because they were trying to increase their position. Many have been called in maybe to play instruments or to dance in this location. And I think he surveys the whole group and says, consider for yourself what I am saying. Is the power of God real to you or is it not? Look in verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He's building up to something here. We find life before Christ, B.C., and then we find him building up to something that is so much sweeter, and that is his encounter with Jesus Christ. And as you walk with a passion for what God wants you to have a passion for, you have to have this. You have to have had an encounter with Jesus Christ, and that's what he talks about here. Because he was not on some kind of a journey looking for spiritual enlightenment. He was going against the church. He was persecuting them. He was active in his faith system, and this is beautiful right here, but God invaded his life. And some of you can tell that same testimony. You weren't looking for it, maybe. You weren't wanting it, but God invaded your life. And you can remember the change that was made in you when God revealed himself to you and your need for him. Let's look in verse number 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith 
in me. So let's stop right there. He recounts what happened to him on the road to Damascus. As we think of this picture and Jesus says, stop, why are you kicking against the goads? Let's be reminded of what a goad is. It was an instrument that was used to train an animal, an animal that did not want to be tame. And as they would try to uh, put a yoke on that, an animal's got a pretty good weapon in their back heels. Some of you maybe have been kicked by a horse or kicked by another animal. And when they didn't like what was going on, they would kick backwards. And a goad was like a stick or something sharp, and they would put it behind their heels, and they would kick into that, and it would train that animal to do what they wanted it to do. And the Apostle Paul was actually fighting against Jesus Christ. If you've got the King James Version, why are you kicking against the pricks? They would get pricked. And Paul here was struck on the road to Damascus, And Jesus appeared to him and said, why are you doing this? I am the Messiah that you're supposed to be looking for. And in Paul's simple description of Christ as he gives it before the king here, he talks about the mercy of God and the generosity of God and the love of God. So he talks about his life. By the way, this is a great pattern for you if you want to give your testimony. You want to tell someone about Jesus Christ. Life before Christ, B.C., Paul's encounter with Christ, and then the response of someone who genuinely is a conversion, or is, is a convert, is a convert. Look, at, look with me, um, verse number 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what, hap- but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. Let's stop right there. This is the response of a true convert. Let me ask a question as we look at Paul here. What is the goal whenever Paul would give the gospel? Paul always had a goal. There was a goal that he wanted. He wanted to see, when he gave the gospel, he always wanted to see a convert. He wanted to see someone respond to the gospel. He always had the goal of conversion, and the same is true for us today. Now, I know what some are thinking. Well, hang on a second. I haven't seen a convert in quite some time. Hold on a second, preacher. Doesn't it say somewhere, somewhere there in the Bible that we're supposed to plant some plant and some water, some will nourish it along a little bit, and God gives the increase? And the answer to that is, yes, it does. But can I suggest to you that as you are able to plant the seeds of the gospel, as you are able to encourage someone who maybe has heard the gospel but has not yet responded to it, Greg mentioned that in his announcements earlier, someone who's not a Christian does not have a Bible. There's been a seed planted. There'll be some watering that will take place. Your goal always needs to be, and I think we shortchange ourselves with this, our goal always needs to be the conversion of someone. Pray that way. 
Yes, you can be faithful in giving out the gospel, faithful in watering, faithful in that family member that you've encouraged for years, but do not forget the goal that you want to see the fruit of someone responding to Christ. That's what Paul wants with King Agrippa here. He wants him to respond. Oh, thou king. He talks to him and he says, I did not ignore the voice of God. Jesus changed my life. And Jesus can change your life too. He gives a first-hand response. And then we find the response from the crowd that was listening. We'll back up to verse 24 and read down to the end of the chapter. And as he was testifying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows, remember, Agrippa was an expert in Jewish things. The king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of, things have escaped, none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose <laughs> and Bernice and those who were sitting with them and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Festus cannot control himself any longer. He gets the religious zealots. He gets the people in Jerusalem that are advancing and getting popularity. He gets all of that but this one here genuinely believes that Jesus, who would have been just a few years, you know, earlier, was killed, Romans made sure of that, and that he rose from the dead? You're out of your mind, is what he says to him. And if you genuinely believe this, and if you live your life like this, folks are fine for you to believe whatever you want. Stay in la-la land however you want. But just as I saw a clip of someone who was attacking Christians' beliefs, they said, don't tell your kids this, though. We need your children. You believe whatever kind of fairy tale you want, but don't let your children believe that. And you will be thought crazy if you are all in with this. I was walking just yesterday, and I was uh, walking by somebody's car in my neighborhood. Don't, I wasn't, you know, don't, don't judge me. I'm walking by somebody's car and I looked inside there and I saw the word Christ really big on a book inside the car. So I stopped and backed up and looked and it was called The Case for Christ. Some of you are familiar with that book. This, it was made a movie recently, best Christian movie that I've seen, The Case for Christ, Christian movie I've seen in the past year. Incredible. And it's all about how someone's, um, someone had a wife who was a Christian and he said, I'm going to debunk all of this and he tried to disprove the resurrection and he could not do it. And now I believe, I believe it's Lee Strobel. I think that's who it is. And um, now he is a wonderful Christian speaker and wrote a book called The Case for Christ. And people will think you are crazy if you genuinely live this way. 
You believe whatever Sunday school stories you want, they're, they're happy with that because most of the churches and religious groups kind of are good. They tell you to obey the Ten Commandments and not to steal and don't murder. They make you a better person, volunteer your time. But when you go to the point, hold on a second, when you go to the point, when you passionately believe this and you tell someone you need this in your life, that is something in the Christian faith that is not as common. There are plenty of faiths that do not require their people to proselytize. When you hear the word proselytize, do you have a good feeling about that or a bad feeling about that? Usually bad. Folks don't want you to impose upon them what you believe. And we have a world full of Christians who have bought into the bumper sticker theology of coexist. And you cannot force someone to take on your God and your Jesus, but your heart should be broken for them to want to get that, and for all men across all lines. And Festus cannot control himself any longer. Paul is nuts. He's crazy. And that's how they would attack this. In July of 1982, there was an article in Sparks Magazine that was released and it was titled, Faith as Madness. And the article documented the official Soviet position on religion. Here's what it said. Faith in God is considered a delusion. And so at that point in the Soviet Union, there was a treatment for dissenters who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. And that treatment included sometimes torture and oftentimes drugs for psychological problems. They thought they were crazy. People will think you're crazy if you are all in. Don't be afraid of that. Don't admit that you're crazy. He, he said, I'm not crazy, Festus. But don't be afraid of that. And do not be fooled into thinking that if you desire for others, both small and great, to come to Christianity, that you will not suffer some kind of a penalty. Your angle should be to proselytize others. Almost persuaded is the picture that King Agrippa comes. And we're past time, but let me just share with you my heart. And for those of you who pray for Calvary and pray for these times, there is not a Sunday that goes by that I do not think that someone comes to worship with us or listens over the radio that does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think that as the gospel comes through, I think that I, it, it burdens my heart to think that some people say, maybe, someday. Almost persuaded today. Maybe next year. And that's the picture that King Agrippa comes. Almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. And my fear is that some of you would stand before God someday and say, there was a time when I was almost persuaded to accept Christ as my Savior. And yet I got distracted. I started to weigh this world and this church. Do not say no to God. Look at verse number 30 with me. Then the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those that were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. He could have been set free. All right, very quickly, if you're taking notes, what can you do? What can you do with this? I want you to keep in mind those three individuals that are involved when there's a conversion, when someone comes to Christ. 
There's the person that's hearing the gospel, whether you're planting the seed, watering the seed, doing something to encourage it. There's the work of the Holy Spirit, and then there is you. I want to challenge you today to allow your heart to be moved to action in the one of these areas that you can control. You can't control the other person. You can't control what the Holy Spirit's doing, but you can control you. And so what I'm asking is, go ahead and have an angle. Let your angle be to follow Jesus and to be obedient in telling people about Jesus' mercy and his generosity and his love. We have so many tools. And if you know Jesus Christ, you've got one of the most wonderful tools, and that's your own life story. Live for him. Step out on faith. Don't be afraid to let others judge you because you're obeying and honoring and following him because his mercy and his generosity and his love means so much to you and what you will have for eternity. And yes, you'll worship him for eternity, but you have a short time in this world. And by the way, it's even less today than it was tomorrow. A short time in this world to show others what you have in Jesus and to see the goal of giving the gospel. And that goal is to see people come to Jesus Christ, saved, baptized, and then joining side by side with you here in our church. This is God's plan for you. You have been made for greater things than these shiny things over here. These things that would hold your attention. You have been made for something amazing. That's to be an ambassador before kings and before simple ones and give them Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our precious Father, we look to you feeling with feelings of inadequacy. I know as I say these words, that's a challenge to me, and the folks all across here would say, what in the world could I say, could I do? How could I challenge someone? Maybe I'll just pray. Would you allow us to have boldness, Father, knowing that there are some that are maybe listening to this message today that have less than a year here in this world. What will they do that year? There are some right now who are connecting with someone, maybe on their job or in their neighborhood or at school, that they're not going to be able to connect with in a year or two years. God, allow us to understand that we need to redeem the time that you have given. We thank you that you are so faithful to do your part. We praise you for the Holy Spirit and the work that gets done we are walking by faith that you're bringing people along that you have prepared to hear that message. Allow us to be faithful. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, just as the piano prays or plays, I'm gonna give you a chance to pray. Two things. Number one, if you've been coming to this place and you're not genuinely following Jesus, follow him today. Throw yourself on his mercy seat and ask for forgiveness and give your life to him. It is worth it. You are not crazy. It's better than everything this world has to offer. Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could have eternal life. Accept that invitation to follow him today. Maybe you're here today. I'm being completely honest with you when I tell you there is someone in your life right now that is not going to be there a year from now. And when God burdens your heart with this, you're going to weep you were going to say, I wish I would have shared the gospel with them. I wish I would have not just been, you know, a fun guy or a, or a moral guy or a good neighbor or a good coworker. but I wish I would have shared with them what I have and then trust what God's going to do with it. 
I want you to pray for somebody by name or maybe um, a position, a house they live in, someone that you might not be able to connect with. Pray that God puts that burden on your heart right now.